Um, I have a difficult text today, and I'm wearing, some of you will notice I'm wearing the closest thing I've got to my muck boots, right? Do you know what muck boots are for? They're for mucking the stalls, for dealing with the difficult stuff. That's not why I'm wearing my boots today. I have a very sore toe, and I've got boots that can't give in around it, and so that's what I'm doing is I'm protecting my toe. But they're the closest thing I've got to muck boots, and I've got a difficult text. And just so that you know, um, I have a methodology that I sort of, I start a storyline and I stick with it until it's done. I start a gospel and I stick with it till it's done, or, or a letter, one of the epistles. And I do that as a discipline to make sure that when we get to a difficult text, I deal with it. A lot of the church calendar stuff allows you to sort of pick and choose and go, well, I don't really like that one, so I'll, I'll go over here and deal with the nice one. Today I've got one of those texts, and it, I find it interesting that the children's sermon had this line in it, and he helped himself to the purse, because that is on topic for the sermon today, just as the scripture that, that you read this morning, Lord, bring the boom, right? If you didn't get anything else from Jeremiah 17, there's a call, Lord, bring the boom. How long, oh Lord, will this bad stuff go along, go through? go through. And so today I want to talk to you a little bit about something that's not much of a secret. Do you know the people of God, Christians, this holy nation, a nation of priests, that we have a bit of a credibility gap. Some people say, we have sermons that say, wouldn't you rather see a sermon than hear one? Because most of the people that say sermons don't actually follow them. You, you, right, isn't that the general public held belief? I hope that if you, you listen to me and you get to walk next to me for a while, you'll know that, that I beat myself up pretty good over some of the stuff I have to say. And, and maybe I'm not just a speaking or a talking head. So anyway, but this is one of those topics. And I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about what it means to be part of the people of God or a Christian. And I'm going to use this quote. This is from, uh, from Princess Bride. I meet a lot of people that say the word Christian, and they keep using that word, but I don't think it means what they think it means. Are you one of those that uses that word, but it doesn't really mean what you think it means? Or, or maybe you're questioning that. I, I met somebody this morning who literally said, well, I, I kind of have a... I have my own religious stuff, but, and we talk a little bit, me and God, but that's completely between me and him, and I don't do that with anybody. You know, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. We keep talking about meeting Jesus, that we've got to meet Jesus in our lives, and then we say, we forget that, that it's not meeting Jesus doesn't make us a planting in his oasis. That means you met somebody. Hi. So if I come up, and I didn't do this with Art, but I've done this before. The first time I met you, I said, hi, Art, I'm Dave, right? That's what meeting somebody is. Now, if Art and I never spoke again, we will have still met. Yeah? But when we meet Jesus, we're talking about whenever we talk to people, have you met Jesus? Yeah. You know, I, I, read, I heard a story about him once, and, and uh, you know, I, I think he and I are all good. That's not what that means. 
If you're going to have a friend for life, you're going to have to do more than just introduce yourselves. You're going to have to get to know and walk together for a while. But sometimes that means that you've got to deal with difficult things. And today is one of those difficult things. And, it's got a, and I've got a two-point story, and I'm going to read part of it. I'm not going to read it all because it's 45 verses, the chapter. But I, I can tell you the whole thing, but I can also sum up. You know, there's no time. So here it is. This is from 1 Kings 21 through 34. This is the first sum of it. And I'm going to skip some of it just so that you know. I didn't get my Bible on the right scripture here. I have a, a trick last week. Last week I got interrupted in the first service and, and I put my thumb on my Bible while I was interrupted and it was sitting there paging. So when I got back to my Bible, it was like 17 pages away from where it had been, <laughs> which is super helpful when you're up front, isn't it? Those teachers, do you, does that ever help you as a teacher when you're, you're pay, your book's on the wrong page and you can't figure out where you're supposed to go? That happened last week. Awesome. So here it is. The king Ben-Hadad of Aram mobilized his army, supported by the chariots, the horses, and 32 allied kings. 32 vassal kings. Now, whether that's a city-state or an area, it doesn't say. But if you've got 32 vassal kings, you probably have access to a pretty good-sized army. They went to besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel, and launched attacks against it. Ben-Hadad sent his messengers to the city to relay the message to King Ahab of Israel. This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine. So are your wives and the best of your children. All right, my lord, the king, Israel's king, replied, all that I have is yours. Excuse me? All that I have is yours? Yeah, just no problem there. Your silver, your gold, your wives. The best of your kids, they're mine. Soon Ben-Hadad's messengers returned again and said, this is what Ben-Hadad says. I have already demanded that you give me your silver, gold, wives, and children. But about this time tomorrow, I will send my officials to search your palace and the home of your officials, and they will take everything you consider valuable. And Ahab summoned his elders and said, look, what, how this man is stirring up trouble. I already agreed to his demand to give him my wives and my children, my silver and my gold. And they look at him and says, don't give in to any more of his demands. Well, you think? I mean, I've already given you my gold and my silver and my wife and my kids, but now you're going to come search my house and, think, and take the stuff I really think is valuable? There's about 15 wrong things going on here in the head of Ahab. I just want you to know that sometimes people say foolish things. I will give you everything you asked for the first time, but I cannot accept this demand of yours. So the messengers returned to Ben-Hadad with that response, and Ben-Hadad sent the message back, May the gods strike me and even kill me if there remains enough dust from Samaria to provide even a handful for each of my soldiers. Right, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth because you, you gave me your wife and your gold and your silver and your kids, but you didn't give me the, the stuff, you know, your TV. Because they had that in the Bronze Age. 
the king of Israel sent back, a warrior puts on, putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who has already won. And Ahab, Ahab's reply reached Ben-Hadad, and they said, prepare to attack as they left their tents drinking. Ben-Hadad commanded his officers, and so they prepared to attack. But something happens in the midst of this little exchange of petty dictators and all this stuff. A prophet comes. There's a certain prophet that came to King Ahab of Israel and told him, this is what the Lord says. Do you see all the enemy forces? Today I will hand them over to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to pause for a second here just to let you know that that there's a difference between knowing that there is a God. Have you ever met somebody that, that there is a God? I'm, uh, you know, I know over there we don't have much to do with each other. But there is one somewhere. Between knowing this, that the Lord is God. There's a difference there. Do you, do you recognize that difference between um, we have sort of a passing acquaintance with knowing that they're over there on the left in the left room on the corner and, and that, that I'll kind of stay out of his way if he stays out of mine and we'll be all good with each other. And this one, there's a God and, and, and he does some stuff. This is the meet God moment. But there's something beyond that and we're going to get to that and that is over here that knowing that he is my Lord. Do you see that that's, that that's the second one on steroids? Right? That, that instead of just knowing that there's a God, that you submit and you begin to believe and follow and, and love and operate the way that he wants. This is the ideal Christian um, position. But by the way, most of the world that sees Christians see this is the Christian position. By the way, there's a God out there somewhere, and you know I'll see him next Thursday. How will he do it, Ahab says. This is what the Lord says. The troops of the provincial, provincial commanders will do it. Should we attack first, Ahab asked the prophet. Yes. So Ahab mustered his troops, and he, and he got 7,000. I'm sort of skipping down because you know, I don't have half an hour just to read this out loud to you. Ben-Hadad says, take them alive, whether they come for war or peace. But Ahab's provincial commanders and the entire army now had come out to fight, and each Israelite soldier killed the Aramean opponent, and suddenly the entire Aramean army panicked and fled. The Israelites chased them, but Ben-Hadad and a few of his charioteers escaped. However, the king of Israel destroyed the other horses and chariots and slaughtered the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet said to Ahab, Get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now, for the king of Aram will be back next spring. Well, he came back next spring with another group of them, and they, they said some things. Like, you know, that works. God, God won because he's the God of hills and valleys and things like that, so we're going to attack him on the, on the plains because he's not God there. Sorry. <laughs> he's not actually God on the on the plains, which are sort of formed by hills and valleys. I'm not really sure how that works. Anyway, so they battle again. There's a big battle. And afterwards, this is verse 30. I'm skipping down. The rest fled to the town of Aphek, where the wall fell on them and killed 
another 27,000 of them. Ben-Hadad fled into the town and hid in a secret room. Ben-Hadad's officers said to him, Sir, we have heard the king of Israel, kings of Israel are merciful, so humble yourself, wear burlap around your waist, putting ropes on your heads. In other words, ropes on your head is not wear a headband, by the way. That's a rope around your neck that goes to somebody else. Just a little, little piece of thing. You know, wear a rope on your head is not saying, my hair isn't neat today and I need to have my hair controlled. Mine doesn't ever work that way. So, and, and then surrender to the king of Israel. Perhaps he'll let you live. So they put on burlap and ropes and they went to the king of Israel and begged, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. The king of Israel responded, is he still alive? He is my brother. Yes, they took this as a good sign and quickly picked up his words. Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad, you know, the one that's been trying to kill you. Go and get him. And the king of Israel told him, and they went to Ben-Hadad, arrived. Ahab invited him into his chariot. And he says, Ben-Hadad says, look, I'm going to give you back the towns of your father. And you can establish places of trade in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Well, his father did it in Samaria by conquering a third of Samaria. That's how he established commerce in Samaria. We sort of do that now in our country. We sort of establish con- conquest and then, con- and then start trading with them. Then Ahab says, I will release you under these conditions. So make a new treaty. And Ben-Hadad was set free. Now, it's hard to imagine a wall big enough to fall on 27,000 people, isn't it? Can you do that? Can you just imagine that for a second? Wait, that's a big wall. But you're, it's not there, it's not in this story to say, look, a bunch of people died. Aphak is a town on the edge of the promised land. And do you know any other story where something fell and sort of was a conquering moment. Right now, if you've had any children's Sunday school, you should hear Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Jericho, right? This is what we've been talking about, the story. It's got echoes of other stories in it. Things are happening. The battle belongs to the Lord at Jericho. It wasn't that the soldiers were so good or that outnumbered them. Matter of fact, God's, God almost always makes sure that when it's his battle, the battle is smaller. Do you know what that's about? There's always a remnant of the people of God that will follow him. Even if the commander, King Ahab, is kind of an idiot. And he is. And we'll see about that in a little bit. But there's something else going on about the fall of that you're supposed to hear in this echo of, of Joshua and Jericho. Do you remember that there were some commands that God gave in the story of Jericho? And it was... Don't take any of the gold or silver from this conquest. This is mine. Some other stuff will be yours, but none of this. They called it the ban. It's under the ban. But if you remember right, there was a guy named Achan who saw that big victory and goes, (laughs) I'm going to get wealthy. I'm going to get rich off of this. 2 Timothy 3, 2, 
in the King James, I love the wording of the King James in this because it actually is, is really a strong translation, says, you can tell a false prophet that one of the signs of ungodliness in your time is it makes a merchandise out of the people of God or the work of God. You know what that means? What does it mean to make merchandise out of the people of God? You're going to find a way out of the work of God to make money. You know anybody on your TV that kind of looks like that? Don't ask me whether they're true or false. They're making their seven, I know of at least two that make seven million a year on TV selling the word of God. Just because you've read it doesn't mean it's yours to sell. Matter of fact, the ownership of the word of God belongs someplace else. And even in my life, when I read it, I'm hoping that it begins to own me rather than me own it. But Ahab sees a moment. The victory belongs to God, and he's going to take a little money. He's going to take the opportunity to do something. But what he's going to do is, look, this is the people of God, and I'm the king, and I know God a little bit. But he hasn't submitted. He's not over here. Do you remember when I stood over here, what was the Lord is God and he is mine and I'll do what he says. That, that was kind of, if I come over here, that's what I mean, right? Well, all humanity, if we understand our narrative, our story, our be story of beginnings, all humanity was in this spot right here until they did one little thing. They reached up into a tree and got the tree the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They decided that they would start judging what was right and what was wrong, that they were going to be the judge. Have you ever known anybody that, that decided what was right and wrong in their life for themselves, even when it didn't look like right and wrong to anybody else? Have you ever met anybody like that? Have you ever been that person? See, my hand is up. You, it's a rhetorical question. You don't have to do this. I've decided in my life at times that, that I was that I was not um, that I wasn't going to do it God's way because God didn't really understand what was going on. He didn't have the whole story, and I had the whole story, and my judgment was going to be correct. And and maybe it would be okay. You know, I'm Ahab at this moment, right? Maybe it would be. I know that I'm supposed to kill Ben Hadad, but if I don't, I'm going to get rich. And then the silver and gold of my wives and my kids, which I had already given to him, they'll get more. I'll get more of those. I know some people that know that, that came when they met God, they were told they were going to get a better life. Do you know what they heard? More gold, more silver, prettier wife, more kids, <laughs> better friends. That's not the promise, by the way. The promise is, is that God will begin to work in your life, that you will begin to trust his judgment. His judgment in this case has another echo into a very difficult text. The question that starts to work in my heart is, do I trust, you know, I really like Jesus. He's a nice guy. But do I trust that God in the Old Testament? Have you ever heard that? I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. He's not very nice. I heard it last week from somebody. And the echo here for a king that's supposed to kill somebody that doesn't has another echo in the story with Saul and the king of Amalek. 
that Saul is the first king of Israel and he's, and he's starting to take over and, and, and push the Amalekites out of the promised land. By the way, this is, this is one of those stories that if you're going to have a problem with God's judgment, this is the spot, isn't it? Wipe them all out, get rid of them, says the story. Because they're in the promised land and it's, it's really yours. That's your future. But before we get there, before we get to Saul deciding that because his army's kind of bored and Samuel's not there to make the sacrifice, that I'm going to do the sacrifice and then I'm going to go to war before Samuel tells me how to do it from God's direction. And then, by the way, I'm supposed to kill Agag, but I'm not going to. because and, and, and I can read the scripture here from... From First Samuel twenty, if you want, but he also is supposed to get rid of everything. And Samuel walks up and he goes, "What about the bleeding of the sheep? What do I hear? You're supposed to get rid of everything. You're not supposed to take anything." Well, you know, we sacrificed all the stuff nobody wanted. We only kept the stuff we wanted. I understand God said don't keep any of it, but you know, some of it would look nice. You know, I, I, that surprise bullet, it, it, won, it won first of show at the county fair. I want it. And so he took it. But here's the deal. We're supposed to hear this. By the way, just an FYI, how many of you know the story of Esther and Haman? Haman is an Agagite. He's a descendant of King Agag that Saul was supposed to kill. But beside that, the, the Israelites went into Egypt for a couple of reasons. The first was that there was a famine in the land and they had to go get food. The second was there wasn't very many of them and you can't hold the promised land with 35. You need a slightly bigger group. And so they were going to go down and multiply in Egypt. The third reason, do you know what the third reason was they went to Egypt and didn't go straight into the promised land? The sin of the people in the land was not filled to full yet. The time of judgment had not come on the Amalekites. God was waiting for them to change and to turn, and perhaps they would. And then, if they would, they could be part of the people of God too. But he was waiting. Have you ever sort of judged somebody before God judged them? That's kind of what we do as humans. Do you know how I know I judge somebody every so often before God judges them? Because if they're standing in front of me and not standing in front of God, God hasn't done the judging yet. They're not dead. I know that sounds harsh, but, but God had judged him. And when we question his judgment, we're reaching up into that tree and we're saying, I decide what's right and wrong, not God. And, and we do it really good. We do it this way. I don't even like the way God judged. So now I'm going to judge God as right or wrong. That's the true spoils of the truth of knowledge of good and evil is that we begin to judge everything as right or wrong. And we get into this difficult text. Can I explain to you why God said kill King Ben-Hadad? I got nothing. 
but I also don't know the whole story. But as a human, I'm pretty good at judging without the whole story. That's what we do. I don't even, I, you know, I judge myself, but I don't even know everything about me. How am I going to know anything about somebody else? If I want to know about me, I've got to go talk to God because he's the one who knows who I am. He's the one who searches my inmost parts and knows me. Have you, do I need, do you, do you all know yourselves perfectly? Okay, so I don't have to go into how we don't know each other, ourselves perfectly because so each of you at some point in your life will do something you didn't understand for why. It's like counseling in a marital dispute. If I've got one of the people in front of me, I know that I've heard 25% of the story. And if you get the other one in front of you, you've heard a different 25% of the story, but you haven't heard the whole story because they don't know the whole story. And then they don't even share everything they know. It's about judgment. How do we judge before God renders judgment? How do we, and then, so here's the deal. Have you met the enemy of your soul? Do you know who that is? I've seen the enemy. The enemy is one of us. It's Achan who takes from Jericho. He says, look, God's doing this, but, but he won't mind if I get a little wealthy. It's Saul who says, I'll do everything God says except for kill the one he told me to do. And then, of course, you know, the bowl is really nice and all this thing, and I'm going to get a little wealthier. I'm going to take care of me because God didn't have me in mind when he said do this. Well, yes, he did. It's Ahab who says, I know I'm supposed to get rid of him, but I don't want to. And if you think I'm reading into this text too far, let me go to the last piece of this. This is the last four or five verses. The, here's a prophet. He placed a bandage over his eyes to disguise himself and then waited beside the road for the king. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Sir, I was in the thick of battle, and suddenly a man brought me a prisoner, and he said, guard this man. If for any reason he escapes, you will either die or pay a fine of 75 pounds of silver. How many of you have 75 pounds of silver in your purse this morning or your wallet? You, none of you? Really? Do you know how I know you didn't? There weren't little, there weren't little wheels on your purses. Because 75 pounds is heavy. Now, if it were gold, that's a lot of money. 75 pounds of gold is a lot of money. 75 pounds of silver was more than a year's wages. How could you ever pay it? But while I was busy doing something else, the prisoner escaped. So here's the king's judgment. Well, it's your own fault. You have brought the judgment on yourself. Then the prophet pulled the bandage from his eyes. The king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And the prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says, because you have spared the man that I said must be destroyed. Now you will die in his place. He just rendered the judgment the king rendered in the story. have this little problem we have a credibility gap we believe that meeting jesus is the big deal yeah meeting jesus getting introduced to jesus is a great big deal 
meeting the Savior of your soul and your life and your body and everything else and all of you, everything that's wrapped up in you, that is a big deal. But the gap that we have is between this, meeting him, and submitting and accepting his judgment of ourselves, which we still don't always do. Just, you know, I'm not trying to beat, beat, you know, 30 lashes with a wet noodle or anything over you here, but we often say, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. You know, I, I, I'd take care of myself now that Jesus has, you know, solved the big issues. I'll do all the little ones. That doesn't work. You follow him all the time. He's your Lord, not some unnamed God that you happen to meet. And maybe you do know his name. Maybe you do know him as Yahweh. By the way, that's the, when you see that all capitals letter in your Old Testament, it says Lord all capitals. That is four letters in the Hebrew alphabet that they quit pronouncing so long ago that they don't even know how to do it. And, and, and it has, when you look in your Hebrew Bible, because all of you have one of those, it has these little vowel points underneath it to tell you which vowels to do. Those are the vowel points from Adonai. It's to remind them that when they say this in the Old Testament, when they saw the name of God, they wouldn't say Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton, or Yahweh, which might actually be the breathing marks of the world so you would be saying his name every time. But they would say Adonai instead because the name of Yahweh was too holy. Now you might see this in our songs. Have you ever seen this in your songs? The name. Holy is the name of the Lord. That's what they say instead of Adonai now because they've decided Adonai was too holy to say. And so they will come to it. And when they have this little circle above something and there's a, a spot in the text it says out here in the thing, it says the name. Don't read that word. That one's too special the name we're building fences around holiness he didn't say to do that we're just doing it we don't build fences around a God who wants to get to know us who loves us who cares for us who who judges rightly because he knows the whole story and he doesn't judge too early in the process Part of the problem with the Amalekites were, and, 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 and were really mad that God said, wipe them out, but they had this little practice. They would take a bronze idol, and they would fill it with coals, and they would take their kids, and they'd put it on the red-hot hands and say, well, if he survives, then God has given him back to us. Child sacrifice. God says, uh-uh. It's also why he said, don't marry, don't intermarry with them, don't do any of that, don't take any of their stuff, because if you do, they're going to rub off on you, and pretty soon you're going to start doing it. Because he knows who we are as humans. By the way, when you read your Old Testament, some of you do that, and it says the king did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he caused his kids to pass through the fire. 
That's an idiom. It's a figure of speech that means that they sacrificed their kids on the altars of Baal and Molech. They intermarried. They became like them. The reason God didn't want them doing that was because they knew that when you intermarry with people of other faiths, what do you have to do? If you marry somebody that has a different faith than you, then pretty soon you're going to have to honor that faith a little bit. Aren't you? If you love the other person, you're going to have to do that. And how long will you hobble yourself between two opinions? From last week. I'm sorry, it's a tough word. We, need, we have this credibility gap because we judged God and then we, and then we, and then we didn't submit. It all goes back to that garden issue. I think I can be autonomous. I can be my own person. I can pull myself by, up by my own bootstraps. Well, if you think you can, have at it. But I think the world has shown that, that even if you're the big bully on the block, sooner or later, there's a bigger one coming around. I'm going to stop. I, I see a couple of, of sort of semi-glazed questioning faces. Do you have a question? Does anybody have a question? They just feel like I've not made something clear. Because I have no idea whether I've been clear to you. I think I've been clear to me. Are we clear? God judges. Yes, Kevin. Okay. He did. Well, he said to kill them after they were unrepentant for so long and the judgment was full and nobody else can survive is kind of what's going on in the scripture. Do I understand why God said kill them? No, but I think I think I do in this way. If I understand it this way, the Amalekites were doing so much evil to themselves and everybody else around them. And God had waited patiently. The, all the time the Israelites are in Egypt, the Amalekites are in the promised land and he says the sin's not full yet. There's no repentance. There's nothing left. How many of you are parents? Maybe I'll just talk with you. When your kids consistently misbehave and, and you say, don't do that anymore, it hurts you and me, and they keep doing it, what do you have to do? Quiet time or the corner, and that always works. Well, for 400 years, what if it doesn't work for 400 years? What do you do? See, that's where we're at. The judgment of the Lord has filled up the time. Do I understand why he did it? Uh, not completely. Um, is it a difficult text? Yeah. Well, it's one of those questions we can notch up to when we get to heaven, when we get into the presence of the Lord and we're asking him questions because we're going to have all the time in the world to do that. We can say, what, what about that? And then he can explain better. But I mean, I, I, have, I have a bunch of stuff I don't understand in this world already without picking up extra things to misunderstand. Do you, so I'm not, I'm not trying to... Right. Well, he tells me not to kill. 
Um, there's a line that sort of talks about this in the Lord of the Rings movie, and it was in the book, and, and I like that. And it said that, that true strength is, o- is knowing when not to take a life as opposed to doing it. The question is, is do we know? Do we know what that time is? Do we have full knowledge? Um, do we know that God has full knowledge? That's where I'm at. And so that doesn't mean that I get to take somebody's life because I don't know enough about the situation to do that. I'm, I'm not trying to dodge a difficult text. I'm sitting here in the same spot you are, wrestling with it and going, I don't get it, but, but I know this God saves me and rescues me. And I know that he's trying to woo everybody to himself. What do, what do we do with the people that don't ever answer the woo, uh, the call of, our lo- of, of a Savior and says, quit doing damage to yourself and everybody else? What do we do with that? I'm not sure there's an easy answer, and I certainly don't want to give one. I think some. I think sometimes our Christian faith has taken too many simple answers and made them, made them the answer everybody accepts, and then and then we look like idiots when we, when we profess faith in something that asks more questions than it answers. So as we wrestle with this, is it all right if I pray and we just continue to wrestle with a God who does understand the stuff and we don't? Is that, is that acceptable to you, Kevin? That we can be praying and just and say, God, answer the question for us? Okay, thank you. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't have all the answers. And I know you don't always tell me all the answers. I don't want to stand up here and be that. But Lord, as we as we come to you, as we know that we need to meet you, as we know that we need to walk with you, as we know know that that even if we walk with you, we still need you. I thank you so much for that, for your love, for your care. For your care with people that we don't understand and and, and I thank you for waiting 400 years with these people I don't, that I don't get it. And so we wrestle with, with what it means to have a God and not to be, be a God. In your precious name, Lord Jesus.